Welcome to Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. I'm Connie Thiessen. On this episode, we bring you part two of our recap from NAB Show. If a theme emerged this year, it was the proliferation of artificial intelligence-powered solutions and virtual production on the show floor, inducing feelings from apprehension to excitement for their potential. But first, lest you get the impression traditional broadcasters weren't represented, we talked to Max Connect President and Chief Engineer Josh Bone. If you made it to this year's show, you may have come across Bone's brainchild, pop-up radio station Max Radio in the West Hall. Among other things, he shared his thoughts on the future of AM radio. Broadcasting live from the floor of the NAB Show 2023, this is Max Radio. My name is Josh Bone. I am the president and CEO of the Max Connect Group. Max Radio was, honestly, it started out as a way for me to fill up my booth. We created this as a way to showcase the broadcast industry for the broadcasters. And we we launched it on April 1st online. April 10th, it lit up on KKLZ's HD2. And we're spotlighting things in the broadcast industry. I mean, radio people don't listen to the radio. We all know that. So I wanted to create something that was interesting enough that radio people would actually want to listen. So we've been interviewing manufacturers. We've talked to folks from the Broadcast Foundation, BEA, Mentoring and Inspiring Women in Radio. We've had lots of college kids through. We've had... We're having Nautel on, we're having Innovonics, so many others that I can't even name them. And just talking about what they're doing, products that are coming out, things like that, as a way to reach a broader audience. You know, a lot of people that haven't been able to come to the show have been listening all week because that gives them the ability to kind of hear what's going on and talk to people that they wouldn't normally get to talk to. What are some of the most exciting innovations that you've seen here at NAB show this year? I haven't seen anything. I haven't been able to leave my booth. (laughs) I mean, I know there's a lot going on with AI, and that's one of the biggest things this year. And it's cool and creepy all at the same time. And, you know, we've actually got it. We've got um, two AI-based processors running here from Angry Audio. One's a software-based C6 and then the Chameleon C4. You know, Cornelius Gould wrote the AI algorithm for that. The C4 is is super cool because it's got one control on it. You plug it in, and it has three settings. And that's it. And it, it tailors your audio based on the algorithms that were written in there, and it automatically adapts. That's been a lot of what this is. And then, you know, the fact that we're finally coming out of the, the long-weighted chip shortage, people are able to finally develop meaningful new products. And, you know, Innovonics has a new HD modulation monitor out that, you know, we, the industry's been waiting for for five years. There's been so much that's come out in the past year because the lack of, you know, the lack of parts availability and the chip shortage handicapped development production to the point where people would develop things, but they couldn't actually produce them. So that's exciting to be able to see what people have actually been able to bring. Through the interviews that you've been doing, do you have a sense, a general consensus on the future of radio? We've heard so much about the demise of AM radio in the past few weeks. What are your thoughts on radio's future in general? Listen, I'm, a, I'm an AM guy. I own an AM radio station. I'm in the process of buying another AM radio station. The one that I have now has a translator, and I'm leasing it to somebody else. The one that I'm buying doesn't have a translator. And 
I don't care because I think I mean AM has to still be a viable medium, and that's you know that's one of the points that NAB is arguing is AM is our I hate to say it this way but AM is our last line of defense in the case of any type of major disaster because of the contours and the distance you can get with the power levels. You know, everybody complains about the big 50 kilowatt clear channel AMs. Those are the ones that can inform half the country with one signal. And, you know, the fact that manufacturers are taking AM out of vehicles because they don't want to have to try to figure out how to do proper EMI shielding to keep the noise from their crappy electrical circuits from getting into the AM, to me, that's just lazy engineering. You know, AM can be viable... But the, you've got to put something on it other than throwaway programming. And that's the way that the, the industry has gotten to the point where we do so much throwaway programming on AM, of course nobody wants to listen to it. And it's funny because uh, a friend of mine owns a couple of AMs, and when, when the AM would go off, but the translator was still on, he would get more calls when the AM went off than when the translator went off because his audience was so used to listening to it like that. I would rather listen to a well-programmed and well-processed AM station than an FM station. I started on AM radio. I'm not that old, but I started on AM, and I, I, I love it. So, yeah, that's, that's a loaded question to me to ask me. <laughs> How long is Max Radio going to be broadcasting? Uh, the plan is to keep it on at least until the end of April. With post-show content, we're gonna, you know, we're keeping the interviews edited. They're already going up on the website. We're trying to do that the same day, um, but we're gonna keep rerunning them as post-show content. The HD will probably turn off at the end of this week. We're gonna keep it online at least through the end of April, maybe into May, and we're looking at possibilities of maybe doing this at some other trade shows around North America if we can find groups that would be willing to give us an HD signal. And, you know, I, the scheduling works out. But we'd like to be able to do this at some other places. And I plan to do this again out here next year for sure. What's what's response been to this? Is the love for all things radio still alive and well? It sure seems like it. We've had a lot of interest. I've had a lot of people that just walk by and I can hear them over talk. And they're like, there's a radio station here. What? I, they're, what? What are they doing? There's a radio station. And it's, it's great because we essentially did a morning show this morning for an hour. Myself, Chris Roth, and, uh, Chris Roth and Isis Jones, they're my two primary hosts. And we got on and it, it reminded me of what radio was 25 years ago when I got into it. You know, it wasn't all this scripted, boring crap. I don't care about celebrity gossip, but I'll happily get on and tell you all about the newest mod monitor and processor that's out there. This is something that is so unique for what we're doing. And that's kind of what I've focused on with, with Max Connect in general is we find weird niche products that shouldn't work but do. And I think this kind of follows falls into that category of this is a niche thing and people are like, why are you doing this? I'm like, I don't know because it's fun. And if you're not having fun, then do something else. AI-powered video editing platform Magnify was among the NAB Product of the Year Award winners in the AI and machine learning category for its flagship product Magnify Digital Highlights Pro, which enables the auto-creation of sports highlights in real time, enhanced with an AI-enabled ball tracker. Magnify's Chief Revenue Officer Migna Krishna took time to talk to Broadcast Dialogue about the pace at which its products are evolving. 
our product, it essentially does AI-based video editing, which means we identify, detect, uh, extract, and publish key moments from any sporting events in real time to various social media channels. We also make sure that they are adapted to the requirements of that social media channel, for example, from vertical to horizontal, without losing the essence of what is happening on screen. How long has this technology been on the market and how pervasive is it in terms of its adoption by the broadcast industry? AI for sports has been used in, for some time. I think one of the first uh, companies that launched it was in 2012. However, there were other supporting materials that are used that were used to create these highlights. Only doing it with AI has only come into play from the last four or five years and it has uh, only now reached the point where pe more and more people are trusting it to create and completely automate the process of editing and it has happened in the last three four years. I was going to ask you about reliability because we've seen so much advancement in artificial intelligence so fast. Does that also apply to magnifying? AI is basically data in, data out. So how much ever data you feed to it, that's the reliability of, and how much, how reliable that data is will, will uh, define the reliability of what you get out of it. So we've trained our AI for the last five years constantly on data uh, models and, and, and have been improving it. So where we started with 60% reliability, we're getting now 80 to 90% reliability on those models. Okay. In terms of advancements, how quickly are new iterations of your software coming out? We have new launches almost every month, simply because uh, with LLP what happens is a lot of these models are now training themselves. So there is, um, and, and, and as they grow and learn, they're going to only become faster. So while today it might be every month, tomorrow it might be every few weeks where the changes uh, come into play. So it's, it's happening really fast and we don't really know how that will look like a year down the line. Is this a hard sell to the broadcast industry or, or have you found any resistance to the idea of using this? I think there are all sorts. There are people who are early adopters, who are really willing and, and have understood and we have had great success. We have a huge lineup of customers who are using us and they love it. Uh, and there are others who are still skeptical and, and then there are others who are scared that uh, they might lose their jobs if they start using AI. However, we always say that we're not here to take away anybody's jobs. We're only here to make those people more efficient and assist them in doing something that is, that's drudge work, that's repetitive work, so that uh, the editors can now become more creative with the output that they deliver. We would love to use AI in other scenarios and there are a lot of different places where AI can really add value like uh, infrastructure, like security. So so I think we, sh as the world we need to adopt AI and understand that we should, well we should put govern governance around it, it's also important to make sure that we are prepared for what's coming in the future. Producer, director, and M&E solutions architect Tom Thudian plackle was at NAB show representing the Entertainment Technology Center at the University of Southern California, founded with the help of George Lucas in 1993 to bring technology and entertainment visionaries together to collaborate. Tom is the recent author of a white paper on virtual production techniques. So I'm Tom Thudian plackle I'm a traditional film producer who in the last couple of years have dabbled into this whole world of virtual production thanks to Unreal Fellowship. So I work with Entertainment Technology Center as a virtual production producer on their last film called Fathead, 
which is a short film, 19-minute film, in which we explored a number of innovative pipelines within virtual production. The idea of ETC is to then share that information with everyone in the field so the rising tide can lift every boat, right? So that's the idea. So we, we tried everything from using virtual humans on the LED walls, live within the, within the shot, um, the whole movie was shot with ICB effects principles, which is in-camera visual effects. The idea being that everything which is captured in the camera is final pixel, meaning you're not correcting anything in post-production with visual effects or whatever. The most you do is collect correct color. There's only one shot in the whole film, or one scene with about seven shots, that actually had a digital animal which we did, of course, because we had children that we didn't want to expose to a wolf or whatever that animal was. So those experimentations were then shared with the world through the film itself, the BTS, now the white paper, which is coming out. So we had two chapters come out. There's two more chapters coming out. And then going to events like NABC, Graph, and other places and sharing whatever we learn, learning from these things, and also planning what's next in conversation with the industry. Do you want to talk a little bit about the pace at which AI has changed your workflow? It's very loose and abundant right now. Uh, it has to become more focused and manageable for it to be a practical uh, tool within a workflow. So right now it's almost like you, you don't even know what you can trust. Like you see something happen one day and you start to work with it and there are 10 other things that are happening similar to it. So there's too much noise and you can't really fo do focused work when there's so much noise going on. So I think we're, we're experimenting with some of, the, some of the tools in isolation from the noise so that we can figure out at a level of principle if something works. It may not, you know, it's all approximations right now. So even if it's 40% good in, in comparison to where it needs to be for it to be professionally within a pipeline, if it works principally, yeah, I can see how this solves the idea. Like, for example, move.ai that I mentioned during my talk, um, up is from London that we used on our previous film, Fathead, was to do markerless, suitless motion capture with children um, during the pandemic because we didn't want them to exchange suits and all that kind of stuff. And one of the things that we mentioned to them as a note was basically, hey, you know what, with virtual production, quick iteration is very important for us, especially in the early stages. And so if your tool could do that in real time, that'd be great. So they were capturing 120 FPS data, which was taking a long time to process. So now they do about 13 to 15 frames per second, uh, and that's good enough for real time. You get a pro again, you're working with approximations, and then you do some solvers in there that just improve, you know, the movement between one keyframe to the next and all that stuff. So they're showing it over here at NAB at the Disguise booth how they do the real time thing with a little lag, but it's really good. So those kind of tools, when it starts to improve you see that proof of concept, it works. Now creatively I know, okay, fine, I can use it here, I can use it you know, in all these particular scenarios. And then when those scenarios become clear, now you become more exact about those improvements that you need to make for that bespoke purpose. And then it becomes more pervasive within that industry. Have you had a chance to walk around, Tom? Tell me what you've seen here at NAB show you know, you find really exciting and innovative. I've walked around a little too much the last two days. I had a swollen ankle yesterday. Um, so yes, um, I did walk around quite a lot and, and saw quite a few tools. Uh, I'd say there's at least 70% more virtual production related new tools, new manufacturers, workflow providers that I've seen. Um, I've been only to the central and the North Hall. And I've seen those new tools crop up, which is a good sign because it's, it 
like last year we were still talking concept you know virtual production as a concept really and we can see the adoption take place this year and again because it's still early days these adoption methodologies may be you know 40% along the way 60% along the way but we have to be a bit forgiving and work with them because only if we keep using them over and over again give regular feedback to the manufacturers the technologists are these things going to be useful and also for creatives to take that leap of faith and to kind of train a new muscle to still achieve those old goals for creative storytelling is very important as well so that's a big thing i saw over here which is very promising what i would add really is we live in a time where it's almost impossible to live a life free of technology or innovation and we have to find ways whether we are uh, in a creative field whether we're in you know uh, legal services or whatever uh, field in in society is that technology is a big part of whatever we are doing and we have to become very uh, adept with it on one one front on the other front i think uh, we have to maintain our humanity and our our um, innate intelligence uh, because those that's what we transmit through the technology so we can't, can't you know it's not one for the other or the other for the they all have to work together so that's i think the big challenge for our generation one of the more impressive immersive installations on the show floor was view technologies booth which had a long lineup of people waiting to test out their virtual production experience here's views r&d program manager ben myers so we are putting on kind of a virtual production demonstration uh, we have used unreal engine 5.1 to build three different environments we have a past present and future and we wanted to give the riders uh, the ability to choose on the bike and so that all is possible thanks to some of our partners uh, which is showrunner they're handling all the automation so once the rider sits on the bike they look at an ipad and they pick past present or future uh, then that choice gets sent to us where we use pixera as our media server uh, and then we trigger either past present or future uh, and the robot in the background the lighting everything kind of comes together as one full experience uh, and then when they're finished uh, they get to scan a QR code with their phone and download their video and it just kind of shows you know the power of virtual production we're allowing people to uh, travel through time uh, in real time there's no compositing going on there's uh, it's just in-camera visual effects so what you see is what you get um, you don't have to edit anything uh, it's just it's just in real time and it's it's pretty cool everything was built inside of Unreal Engine and uh, thanks to Mark Roberts motion control we don't even have to use any tracking for the camera uh, we're actually able to send the positional data from the robot directly into Unreal Engine to manipulate the virtual camera. Uh, and so that's how you get all the parallax and uh, the depth in your scene, which is pretty cool. This booth is so impressive. You've got a huge lineup there. Can you talk about the feedback uh, from the experience of people taking part in this? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, you know, if you compare this to something like a green screen environment uh, and you have a real actor, you know, then, then they can imagine what it's like to put themselves in these environments. But the cool thing about this technology is that you don't really have to be uh, a world-renowned actor anymore to kind of imagine what it's like to be in this environment. You can see what's happening on the screen in real time. Uh, and so you can kind of like better act to certain cues when the plane flies over or a helicopter flies past or you're taking a tight turn or anything like that. Uh, you know, you don't really have to use your imagination anymore. It's almost uh, it's almost like you're there. It's more immersive, you know, so. So how widely is this tech being used right now? 
Uh, it's it's still fairly new, but it's definitely uh, a hot commodity right now. It's it's uh, it's the more people see it, the more they can understand it, and then uh, I think the more it will be uh, widely adopted. Where are you based, Ben? I am based in Tampa, Florida. That is where our headquarters is. Uh, and View currently owns and operates four studios. So we have a studio here in Las Vegas. We have one in Orlando and one in Nashville. Uh, and then we also have uh, around 20 studios across the globe that are in our network that we've built and uh, we help service. So, you know, I do want to remind people this is, we're not trying to replace green screens necessarily. This is just a different tool for a different job. Uh, and, and, but we really enjoy the fact that it's, it's so immersive and it allows people to kind of uh, feel what it's like to be in these environments. So, uh, yeah, it's really fun. Broadcast Dialogue also caught up with Brandon Costa, director of digital at SVG, or Sports Video Group, and Yaroslav Altunin, the tech editor from NoFilmSchool.com, who are both covering an AB show. My name is Yaroslav Altunin. Um, I'm a tech editor for NoFilmSchool.com, and we cover everything you would have learned at film school if you uh, didn't go to film school. So news, tech, writing, directing, cinematography, um, acting a little bit, and I'm on the tech side of things, so we're here at NAB running 12-hour days. <laughs> so it's been a bit of a challenge, so if I stop for a couple of minutes to try to think of where I am, that's probably why, because my brain's a little fried. But the coolest things I've seen, Fuji, I always have to uh, talk about Fuji, we're shooting on their cameras using Frame.io. So what we're doing is we're recording on the show floor. When we stop recording, that clip is automatically transferred via Wi-Fi from the camera to the cloud. And our editors in Los Angeles are pulling it from the cloud and editing off-site, which is really cool. And it's saving us a lot of time when it works because Central Hall is so congested. The first day was a bit was a bit uh, was a bit tough, but we got to work for day two and day three, and it's working like magic. So that's really cool. Frame I O with uh, Fujifilm XH2S. XH2S is one of only two cameras that can do Frame I O internally. And I think the other one is Red Red v, v Raptor. Their name Zion. I, I pronounce it Zion. They have uh, gimbals mostly, but they have some really cool lights that are like the size of Rub Rubik's cube and it's pumping out 60 watts. It's incredible. A lot of AI, DaVinci Resolve has a lot of really cool AI features and, uh, and sorry, Blackmagic has a lot of uh, cool AI features in DaVinci Resolve where you can scan an image and it'll create a depth map of your image. So you can rotoscope, you can do false depth of field, you can do it for color grading by just doing a mask. That's uh, really cool. They also have text-based editing where you can scan like dialogue and you could just copy and paste your transcript as you want, and that edits your timeline. Adobe has the same thing, which is really cool that they announced this year. It's a big show. What really blew your hair back? I can't say. I'm under NDA. <laughs> but that, that's the one thing. I always come here for one company, Fujifilm. And every year, that's like the one meeting I always look forward to. And every year, I'm blown away. And last year, uh, I can say this now, they previewed in, in a private little booth Fujifilm X-H2S, which we're shooting right now. Phenomenal camera. And this year, there's something coming out in the future. So, I don't know, keep your eye out for it. 
My name's Brandon Costa. I'm from Sports Video Group. We usually go by SVG. We're a trade association that um, supports the people who work behind the scenes in sports television specifically. And we've got a big editorial team. We've got a European division. We've got a whole bunch of people here covering the floor. Speaking fun-wise, I think there's been a lot of cool, like, LED walls. Like, the LED walls have looked really sick. Totally. Like, the, like, the one yes. that Ross has. I saw one at the 4A booth. I saw another one. At, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name right now. I mean, so much of what we've been focusing on has been IP and the cloud, which are enabling very cool things, but for the most part, they're, you know, they're infrastructure. Um, so those, there's obviously huge things happening there in terms of, you know, the adoption of IP and, you know, if everyone's finally agreed on a standard and everything like that. But if you're asking me purely what's cool and what I've liked seeing, they, uh, the, the technology on some of these LED walls has been really impressive. I mean, you stand up right up alongside it and look down it and the, the color doesn't go away and it looks so good, so good. So I guess from that perspective, that's what I've really enjoyed seeing. <laughs> Right. Anything from a trend perspective? Uh, there's a lot more virtual production here than than uh, usual. Yeah, yeah, and the, yeah, decentralizing elements of the production too, where people can work from their homes, even in a live production environment, um, which was happening during the pandemic. But I think it was viewed as more of a desperate measure. Uh, but now it's becoming trusted. Uh, a trusted part of live productions maybe not the biggest of professional sports but you know it's not uncommon to see colleges have you know you might have a replay operator or a graphics operator who isn't able to be on the campus work from home and it's it's allowing the industry to uh, tap into more talent from other parts of the country uh, but it, it, that whole idea of a decentralized production or Remy production as we call it in sports where you have one centralized control room and then the cameras are coming in from, from the venue itself it could be uh, you know, 10 miles away or a thousand miles away um that's that's probably been the coolest wildest thing so uh, work from home is even coming to live sports production <laughs> i mean i think just like generally about the show it's been nice to see attendance up and stuff like that i mean it was nice that we did it last year but it was understandably you know there was still you know some covid concerns some people who didn't come the numbers were down a little bit but it was nice that we that did it got it back in the mix and now it really feels like it's it's back and humming again so uh it's been nice to see that nice to see the industry uh bouncing back NAB show attracted about 65,000 people this year with international attendees accounting for more than 17,000 of those from 166 countries. More than 1,200 companies exhibited. We'll see you next April in Las Vegas. For Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, I'm Connie Thiessen. listening to Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.